Welcome to Fucking Cancelled, a podcast about what the left is like, what to do about it, and what it'll be like once we've done it. In today's episode, we'll be discussing accountability processes, a tool often upheld as a radical alternative to courts and prisons, but one which has a few fatal flaws of its own. So welcome back to Fucking Cancel. Welcome back to Fucking Cancel. Thanks for being here, guys. We got a juicy one for you today. Yeah. So before we begin, we just want to make a couple of announcements. Um, the first is about our Patreon. So yeah, we want you to give us money. <laughs> We actually um, don't do a great job of promoting our Patreon on the pod. Like, there's like many episodes where we don't mention it or talk about it, and we want to get better at that because you might have noticed that a lot of your favorite podcasts put like half their episodes behind a paywall, Um, and that's like really common in podcasting world. Or there's some podcasts that have like weird advertisements in the middle, Mm -hmm. or like half the episode itself is like behind a paywall yeah there's a lot of stuff like that which i totally understand because it's actually like pretty expensive to make a podcast um yo who knew <laughs> yeah. like when when i started this i did not think that it would like cost so much yeah but like there's a lot of things that we pay for including like obviously um like hosting hosting it and like whatever there's various like programs that we have to use and then also we pay for editing and we also pay for transcriptions which i'm not sure if we've ever actually officially announced on the podcast either but yeah we pay somebody to transcribe all of our episodes. Yeah, and, um, and basically we do that for, like, a couple of reasons. Like, a few people requested it for, like, accessibility reasons, that it's, like, easier for them to follow along if there's, like, a written um, transcript. And also some people just prefer to read. Yeah. So if you go onto our Patreon, they're free. Like, the transcripts are also totally free um, to, to everybody. They're attached to the episodes that we upload onto Patreon that are not behind a paywall. Yeah. And so, yeah, we're committed to not ever putting things behind a paywall um, because obviously, like, we really care about the topic and we think it's important that it gets out there. And so we're not doing that. But basically what that means is that, you know, it's harder for us to make money. And so basically on our Patreon, the things that are behind a paywall is, like, we occasionally share writing that either of us do that's on, like, related topics um, and some, like, behind-the-scenes stuff. But mainly the purpose of the Patreon is for people who believe in the pod and want to see it continue to throw us a bone and help us out. Yeah. So please check out the Patreon. If you can't afford to support us, absolutely no worries, of course. Um, but if you can, we would greatly appreciate it. Yeah. Um, and then we're going to try to make an effort to talk about it more on the pod because we've definitely slacked on that. Um, and then the other thing that we wanted to announce that's very exciting is that we have recently done a merch drop. Yeah, we finally dropped a merch. And so this is another way that you can support the pod if you're so inclined. We have a store that is fucking canceled.bigcartel.com. We will put the link in the show notes. And basically, yeah, we dropped um, a t-shirt design, which sold out immediately. So thanks, guys. It's really cool and exciting to think about people walking around wearing a t-shirt that says fucking cancel. <laughs> <laughs> we honestly didn't know how well it was sell because we're like, it's pretty brazen to, uh, to wear that shirt in public. Um, but it sold out, so... Lots of brazen fans out there. Um, We're currently working toward doing a second uh, run of the shirts. So if you're interested 
in a shirt. Um, keep your eye on the store. We'll definitely announce it um, on our Instagram too, which is another thing we haven't really mentioned that much on the pod, but we do have an Instagram. We do. Which is just fucking canceled. Um, and so follow us there for updates and stuff. So we'll announce when the shirts go up. We also released a zine that is called um, Refusing, Accountability. Refusing Accountability. And it's based on the transcript of one of our episodes. Actually, one of the episodes is on a similar theme to what we're doing today. Episode 6. Yeah. Oh, great. Good for you for remembering the number. Um, yeah. And so that is actually really relevant to the episode today. So if you haven't listened to that episode, um, I recommend going back and listening to it because it will definitely inform the conversations that we're having on this episode and or get your hands on the zine. We wanted to make it into a zine because um, we think it's a really important resource. There aren't a, there aren't a lot of, um, there aren't a lot of like alternatives to cops and prisons that are also critical of cancel culture like out there. Um, often the things that claim to be like transformative justice or whatever are like very mired in cancel culture logics, which is a lot of what we're going to go into the episode today. But we wanted to like have it in zine form so that people can, you know, pass it on to friends or it's just like a different way of relating to the content than listening to a podcast. Yeah. Also, it's like if you want to like look something up or like see exactly like what was said or something you know it's a lot easier to flip through exactly um, a zine than it is to like listen to a two-hour long episode exactly and we're hoping that it will be like actually like a concrete um resource that people can use when they are dealing with like conflict and community and trying to figure out what to do so there's that and then we also dropped a bunch of stickers so there's like a couple sticker designs um and you can order just like individual stickers or if you're extremely brazen you can order them at affordable prices in bulk. Yep. Um, and so basically the idea is, is if you want to like make um, a presence in your local community to let people know that there's people there who are not down with cancel culture, you can do that. Yep. And because we believe in centering the most impacted, <laughs> um, we have a discount code. If you live in Montreal, um, Melbourne, uh, Brooklyn, or Portland. Yeah. Um, you can use the city names um, on our big cartel and get 10% off of everything. Yeah. So that's our little um, announcements. Thank you so much to everybody who bought stickers and shirts and for everybody who's um, a patron. We really appreciate it. Yeah. So let's get into the topic today. Let's do it. Today we're going to talk about the concept of accountability processes. And so this is like a juicy topic. It's definitely a controversial topic um, because – Basically, there's a lot of people who are abolitionists. Oh, sorry. If you hear strange noises, it's because <laughs> we are at the cottage and there's a there's a fire burning. <laughs> I have to go fix the fire. I'll be right back. Um, so, yeah. So there's a lot of people who are abolitionists, who don't believe in courts, who don't believe in cops, who want to have alternatives to intervening on violence and abuse in our communities, um, who want to have ways of... Uh, navigating conflict, which is a separate thing than intervening on abuse, and those things definitely tend to get collapsed, Um, and who believe that accountability processes are like this transformative justice strategy that can um, give us justice without reproducing carceral bullshit, basically. And I I think there's a lot of people who are really, really well-meaning and who are really hopeful about this strategy. Because of where we are positioned doing this podcast, we get so many emails and messages um, from people who are experiencing cancellation in various ways. 
And so we had this like sort of bird's eye view of a lot of stuff that's going on, right? Yeah. And we receive so many messages from people who are experiencing cancellation and who are being coerced into taking part in some kind of accountability process. We also receive messages from people who agreed to accountability processes and have been caught up in what is, quite frankly, a very abusive uh, situation. Sometimes for years. Sometimes for years. And there's really disturbing stuff that we hear about this. And so we um, actually are not proponents of the accountability process model. Um, And... There's a lot of reasons for that. And mm-hmm. so in this episode, we are going to unpack some of those um, reasons. And actually, like, it's bigger than one episode, so we're probably going to have to come back to this in the future. But, yeah, we're going to unpack why we generally don't think that accountability processes, as they are currently practiced, are an effective alternative either to courts and cops and that kind of shit mm-hmm. or to cancel culture. Exactly. Um. Yeah. Is there anything else you want to say about that before we get into the content? Well, I think it's worth pointing out, too, that lots of people um, who get stuck in accountability processes or whatever, or even who, like, aren't necessarily currently stuck in one, um, truly believe in them, right? And, you know, people believe in them for lots of different reasons. I think, yeah, like, the main one is a lot of people believe that if we are... Uh, truly, like, anarchists, or if we're, like, really anti-state, or whatever, if we're really opposed to the criminal justice system, then we have to um, sort of come up with new ways of resolving conflict, or, like, dealing with, like, what, like justice, which is, like, a nebulous concept, but, you know, um, people want justice, right? Um, and so they're like, well, we have to come up with structures that that we can use um, to to enact justice that don't rely on on the state, right? Um, and so if, if you believe that, which is like totally like a valid thing to believe, um, then of course you would say, well, you know, accountability processes seem to be what we have, you know, mm-hmm. um, sort of more traditional methods of, of doing this kind of thing have been more or less obliterated by like the rising tide of, um, culture killing capitalism. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so we're left with, with the so-called accountability process. Yeah. And I, and we're going to get into it more, but I think an interesting, piece of this is that over the past however many years we've seen like kind of two big political um movements i guess rise up one being like the me too stuff the like believe survivor stuff Mm. and the other being abolitionism or like fuck the police and so um these two things actually have like quite contradictory impulses within them Um, And I think accountability processes or, like, the large sort of push towards and belief in accountability processes is a way in which people try to, like, resolve the conflicts between those two sort of political framings. Mm. Um, And I don't think that they do it well. And so we're going to unpack that um, in this episode. So I guess, yeah. So to get right into it... um, The first issue that we have with the concept of accountability processes has to do with um, the issue of discernment and the issue of due process. So right from the beginning in the concept of accountability processes is it's like embedded within it. There is the orthodoxy, the nexus orthodoxy that like you should believe survivors, right? Mm -hmm. That it is um, bad to question an accusation. It is actually seen as like kind of like a crime in and of itself 
to not believe survivors, right? And we hear this all the time. It's like a slogan, believe survivors. So if somebody says that they were abused or if somebody says that they were harmed, it is essential that everyone believes the accusation and centers the accuser and basically goes forward with what the accuser wants. That's like basically the foundation of like what an accountability process is. And so it starts with the idea that the person who has been accused has something that they have to be accountable for, and then we are going to move into the process of accountability. Right, like it's built, it's in the name. It's right in the name, right? It's 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 an accountability process, which means that you've already decided that there is something that needs to be that accountability is needed for, right? right? And so the problem with this is that there is no discernment first. Like there is no process through which you actually look at the accusations, you like hear the perspective of both the accuser and the accused, and you actually try to make sense of what happened. And to even suggest that you should do that is often seen as like a really bad thing. Right. And it's like without without some kind of process to try to determine um, the accuracy of claims, the the phrase believe survivors just means believe accusers. Yeah. And and so like if if you replace that slogan, um, believe survivors with believe accusers, and just walk around the world saying believe accusers, like you can immediately see how crazy it sounds. Right? Yeah, I mean, some people would say that. Some people would see that it sounds crazy. Yeah, I mean, I think others would be kind of on board with that. But I think the point that we're trying to make here is that okay, so basically, because accountability processes are framed as alternatives to courts and police, they are understood as abolitionist, right? That is how we have sort of come to understand accountability processes as like an abolitionist tool because they're seen as an alternative to police. So therefore they are seen as abolitionist because you're not relying on the police, right? Right. And we're going to get into more about, about that in a second. But fundamentally, the base ideas about accountability processes that you should believe all accusations without question contradict basic abolitionist principles, which is that um, the accused should have rights and that the accused actually should be able to defend themselves. The accused should be able to deny things if they did not do what they've been accused of. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, like, so much about what abolitionist work has has been about has been, um, you know, that in the current carceral system— you know, those who are accused should be well represented. They should, like, actually have access to, like, good counsel, right? They should actually be able to have the right not to incriminate themselves and to not um, do, like, you know, people are pressured into, like, uh, plea deals because they don't want to go to jail for longer, and then they said they did something that they didn't do, right? Yeah. Because they were not well represented and they their rights were not protected, right? And so, like, abolitionists are against that kind of thing. Abolitionists are like, actually, no, people should not be coerced into saying that they did something that they did not do in order to avoid punishment. And not even just abolitionists, right? No. Like, like, huge swaths of the progressive um, community, and even, like, lots of people on the right, including the libertarians and stuff yeah. like that, also believe that the court system, you know— um, you know, it, it really needs to be held to account, um, no pun intended or whatever, and and that, yeah, the rights of people who are accused of crimes need to be upheld, right? And actually, like, the entire court system itself in, in like, Western democracies anyways is the result of people fighting for hundreds of years to have things like the um, the presumption of innocence be, like, enshrined in law, right? Yeah. And, and the issue is that it's, it's often not um, 
upheld the way that it should be. And that's what like, you know, court reformists and, and libertarians and, 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 you know, anybody who cares about civil rights uh, is concerned with. Yeah. And so, as well as abolitionists. And like the reason for this is because it's a very serious thing. It's a very serious thing to accuse someone of a serious crime. Right. Like it's a very serious thing that has very serious consequences on that person's life. And I think also what happens is that, you know, because accountability processes are not using jails, they kind of don't think that the consequences are as extreme. And so therefore it becomes, it's it's seen as less serious to make major accusations. But we know actually that whether or not cops are involved, publicly accusing someone of a serious crime has huge impacts on their lives. And so it is actually very serious, regardless of whether or not it's happening inside or outside of the carceral system. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, yeah, basically, if we, um, we really need to interrogate what we mean when we say believe survivors, right? And we actually have to understand it's, there's like this, this um, statement that is like, people don't lie in accusations, right? Like there's a sort of belief that people don't make up false accusations. Right. That is held as an orthodoxy within the nexus, right? Yeah. And I really think it comes out of this um, idea that people don't make false rape allegations to the police. Like there was like, I don't know, there used to be these little... um, Like infographics? Infographics that like basically showed like statistics of like, whatever, false reporting. Mm -hmm. And like, I agree that, you know... Generally speaking, I don't think it's very common that people lie about rape to the police for lots of reasons, because it's, like, a very stressful thing to go to the police because the whole court system is, like, very overwhelming for people. It's like, has a lot of consequences for the the accuser to do that as Mm -hmm. well, right? Mm -hmm. It's a very serious thing to do. Mm -hmm. Um, But making an accusation to the internet is not the same as making an accusation to the police, right? Yeah. Also, many of the accusations that are made that result in accountability processes are not accusations of rape. Right. They are accusations of many, many other things, many of which are very, very vague, right? So to say, like, no one makes false allegations, first of all, we just know isn't true. You know? Yeah, like, of course they occur. Of course they occur. And even false allegations of rape occur. Like, we have, like, historical documentation of that, For you sure. know? Um, they're, maybe they're not common. I would agree with that. But it's a different context you can't like extrapolate like it's unusual for people to make false accusations of rape to the police and then extrapolate from that to say it is unusual therefore for people to make vague accusations of harm to the internet right for sure and and it's like of course people can make a false allegation of harm to the internet right especially when like the term the terms they're using are these like extremely nebulous yeah. terms like harm itself, you know? Yeah. And also there's the fact that people can make accusations or allegations to the internet that they believe are true. Right. But that like, totally. um, but that it can, it, it's very much up for debate whether or not they're actually things that anyone should be held to account for. Yeah. Which know? is something we talked a lot about in the episode. Episode six. Yeah. Episode six, which is basically about like, how do we define terms like harm? Like what, is a boundary violation and et cetera. So definitely listen to that episode for more on that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and I also have an article, which you can find on my Substack that is called, I called my ex abusive when they weren't, which is basically about what Jay was just talking about in which I didn't try to like make an accountability process or, you know, create a giant slander campaign, but I did tell a bunch of people that my ex was abusive. And I genuinely believed that that was true because I was so distressed and unhappy and, I felt neglected in that relationship. And because of 
the things that I was hearing inside the Nexus, I had come to believe that that constituted abuse, right? Right. And in fact, it did not. And so I actually, you know, created serious consequences in my ex's life by basically painting them as an abuser when they weren't. But I wasn't doing that out of, like, a malicious place or, like, intentionally um, making a false allegation. And so that's something to consider as well. Yeah. And then this... um this believe accusers thing, which is like the one of the foundational sort of like elements of the whole sort of philosophical framework of, of accountability processes, um, has all sorts of crazy consequences, right? And one of them is that a lot of people imagine, a lot of people who are accused imagine that by participating in an accountability process, at some point they will be able to clear their name, right? Like if you've been accused of something and you're like, well, I didn't do that. So um, it should be pretty easy to to prove that I didn't do that. I have whatever, I have screenshots or like you have like witnesses and stuff like that. Um, so all I have to do is show up and then, you know, I'll explain things. And then the people of this accountability process will be like, oh, okay, this is a misunderstanding. Never mind. Um, you're, you're reinstated, you know, like we're going to make a post saying like, like it was our bad yeah. and whatever. And a lot of people like imagine that that, that that is what will happen, but that does not happen. Yeah. Unfortunately <laughs> like, that does not like, happen. Like literally, of course that doesn't happen because there is no step um, in accountability processes where they try to determine the accuracy of the allegations. Yeah. Um, and it's right in the name, right? Yeah. Like it, it doesn't, at least I've never heard of it. I, I will say that like, maybe it's possible that there have been some totally. that did do that. Right. We can but, only report upon like what we have been, you know, told about right. and what we have experienced. Right. So this is from, you know, our experiences hearing about accountability processes that have happened to people that we know or reading about accountability processes that have been publicized on the internet. Or the many, many messages we receive from people who we don't know who to share their experiences. Or the zillions of messages. Yeah, for sure. And some people, I mean, we know one person who was basically promised that if they participated in an accountability process that they would be reinstated. Yeah. Um, and, and that was like the lure to get them in, right? Totally. Um, and, but the people that were, you know, in charge of the accountability process had no intention of ever doing that. Yeah. And so also, like, I think a piece of this too is that there's a lot of people who, you know, get sucked into a cancellation campaign or like they're being canceled on the internet. They are being told that they did horrible things and they're being, you know, it's demanded that they do an accountability process. And I think there are a lot of people who genuinely are like thoughtful, considerate people who looking back at their own behavior are like, I did not act perfectly. Right. Yeah. And most of us have not acted perfectly in our lives, you know? Of course, of course. And so there's a lot of people who like look back and are like, and I've heard many, many examples of, of accountability processes where this was the case where they're like, look, you know what, I think that the accusations against me are really overblown. I think I'm, there are some things that are outright not true, like did not happen. But there are other things that I agree with, that there are ways in which I didn't act as my best self, or there are ways where I acted in ways that could have been hurtful. And I do want to be responsible for that. And so they think that by agreeing to the accountability process, they'll be able to take responsibility for that piece and also dispute the things that they don't agree with. And then it will, you know, give them the opportunity to at least clear their name of the things that they didn't do while still demonstrating to people that they are a responsible person who does want to make things right when it is something that they did. Mm -hmm. And that never goes well, at least in the um, examples that I have heard, because basically the fact that they're refusing to agree with all of the accusations is seen as them refusing to be accountable, yeah. which is like the whole framework, right? Yes, because that, to be accountable basically means to agree with accusations that are made against you. Exactly. And we don't... And to comply with the demands that are put on you. Exactly. And so we don't agree with that. Like our whole thing based in our experiences of 12 steps is that like when you take responsibility for something that you've done, you know, 
you only take responsibility for what you've done. Well, you have to be honest. Yeah, you have to be honest. And you can't take responsibility for other people's, you know, um, emotions, other people's, you know, disproportionate responses, people's triggers. You can't, like, lie and say that you did something that you didn't do to get people off your back. Like, that would not be in alignment with, like, you know, what we learn in 12 steps, which is to be honest and to take responsibility for what you did do. Yeah. And you can't lie and say that you feel bad for things that you don't feel bad for, because you've, you know, if you've, um, you know, carefully examined your conscience and, and determined that the thing you did was like a normal fucking thing that people do all the time. Um, you know, I mean, whatever, like, yeah, you, you shouldn't sort of like pretend or perform, um, like penitence if that's not actually how you feel. Right. Um, also one last thing before we move on to the next topic is just that like, because the, the underlying logic is believe accusers, there is literally no way to determine, um, whether or not the accuser is actually the abuser. Yeah. And this could very well be the case. So like for people who want to protect abusers, I mean, (laughs) for people who want to protect accusers, protect survivors. Yeah. Yeah. Um, people who have been abused, um, like you really have to stop and think about the fact that there is there is no mechanism within I mean within cancel culture generally, but also within these accountability processes that can protect um, survivors from being accused of things by their abuser. Yeah. Right. Because it's just whoever makes the accusation first fucking wins. You yeah. Know? Combined with a few other factors sometimes, but yeah. Definitely combined with other factors, the identitarian angle. Right. Yeah. The identitarian angle angle, and also sometimes like literally just clout. Yeah, social capital, for sure. For sure. Um, Because there's no checks and balances, there's no structure. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, sometimes there are in the more kind of like formal types of accountability process that maybe we can get into later. But oftentimes there's like literally no mechanism to protect people. Um, Yeah, and I've literally been in a situation with friends of mine who were dating and who were having conflict. And like because I knew both of them really well and I knew what was going on in the relationship, I can say like it was normative conflict it was, you know, no, both of them were like occasionally not acting as their best selves, but nobody was being abusive. And when the relationship looked like it was going to potentially end, both parties came to me and were freaking out being like, is the other person an abuser? Am I an abuser or is the other person an abuser? And so <laughs> right. basically like we've created this culture where like we literally don't know how to deal with breakups. I mean, this is kind of an aside, but it is very relevant. We don't know how to deal with breakups. We don't know how to deal with pain. We don't know how to deal with like heartbreak. We don't know how to deal with like you know, conflict and, like, nobody acting like their best self without turning someone into, like, the disposable bad guy. And also, knowing that this is the culture we live in, it really creates an incentive to strike first because you know that neither of you acted like your best self and either of you could frame it as abuse if you wanted to. And so if you don't act first, you might be on the receiving end of it, right? Yeah. So, yeah. And then just the only other thing I wanted to say about that um, as well is just that, like, you know, because we were talking about how um, to be seen as being accountable means to agree with all the accusations made against you and also to agree with all of the demands made against you and to carry them out um, or all the demands made of you and carry them out. And this, again, is something that we don't do in 12 steps, right? Like when you try to correct things, it's like you you make amends, but in an appropriate way. Like making an amends is not becoming a punching bag or saying yes to things that are like inappropriate Right. Um, or like disproportionate or don't make sense, right? Yeah. You should be able to to negotiate and be like, this is what I think is a reasonable ask. Like, for example, if I stole money from you, I should pay that money back. Right. You know? Right. That's a reasonable ask. Right. Um, like, I should re- express regret. I should, like, work towards repair in the relationship if that is what is wanted. Like, things like that. But a lot of the asks in um, 
accountability processes are really, really large and I think really inappropriate to ask for. But we'll get more into that later. So the next thing we wanted to talk about is why we don't actually think that accountability processes are an effective alternative to cops and courts or to cancel culture. Right. Um, So first I'll talk about why they're not actually an effective alternative to cops and courts. Because it's often presented that we do accountability processes instead of relying on the police, right? Now, I'm a survivor of domestic violence, like, literally, um, meaning... (laughs) I like that you have to Like, what I mean by that, what I mean by that is that, like, my ex-partner literally put my body through a wall. My ex-partner physically and sexually assaulted me multiple times throughout our relationship, you know, said degrading things to me constantly, and it was, like, a a physically violent and abusive relationship in which I was scared for my own physical safety as well as the safety of my cats, who it's often, it's, it's a common thing for abusers to threaten, you know, the children of their victims or the pets of their victims as a way of controlling them. And... It was a very violent relationship. After the relationship ended, there was, like, stalking, and he, you know, would, like, stand outside my house, and so on. The thing about situations like this that are very, very serious and obviously should be intervened upon is that an accountability process is not going to work here. Because if I were to get a bunch of community together, I mean, I didn't have community, as many survivors of domestic violence don't, because they are isolated in those relationships— Um, and are often already, you know, in vulnerable positions. But even if I had community and we were like, okay, we're going to do an accountability process, this guy is in such an unstable place. He's so angry and he is so um, unwell that he's actually not going to agree to do that. Like, there's no way that you could actually enforce that to make him come and um, sit down and do what we're demanding that he do right? It's not actually, like, realistic. And so, I mean, I'm sure there's lots of people, you know, who are like, yeah, but we should be able to do that. And I understand the desire to want to be able to to do that, but it, it actually isn't realistic because he, de- he demonstrated in his behavior that he literally did not give a fuck and he was going to do what he was going to do, right? Um, and, I mean, this is also why I don't think that even cops and jails are an effective strategy because the thing is is that even if if you arrest him and he did go to jail um but even if you arrest him and you put him in jail and you traumatize him in jail he gets out again eventually right like people don't go to jail for that long um for these types of crimes they get out again they're more traumatized and they continue to enact this type of violence right so in serious in serious violent situations situations of physical and sexual violence, of domestic violence, of all these types of things, accountability processes literally have no teeth. Like, they don't work, right? Yeah, like, some violent fucking misogynist, like, isn't going to be like, oh, yeah, so I'll just put together a pod. Yeah, exactly. They're just not going to. And so I I just, I don't like that we're pretending that this is something that would work in those types of situations because it, it isn't. And I think that we need to have things to do in those types of situations. Um, and I do have lots of ideas about that, about how to support um, people who are in those types of relationships, um, how people who are friends with the person who's being really violent could potentially like help out or intervene. I think there's lots of things that we can do, but I don't think that an accountability process is literally a possibility there. It's just not going to work. So that's one piece. 
And then the other piece is that many of the situations that accountability processes happen about, right, many of the types of accusations that we have accountability processes about are literally things that would never have involved the police to begin with. Right. So many times accountability processes happen. I mean, people try to force me to do an accountability process because they did not like the way that I was posting on Instagram. Right? Right. You cannot call the police and say, Clementine Morgan is not posting on Instagram in the way that I'd like, and then the police will come and pick me up. It's absurd. That would not happen. <laughs> the police would be like, that is not a crime, and they would just— Please stop wasting our time. <laughs> that's not a crime. That's not illegal. Um, and many of the types of accusations that we see in um, accountability process, like discourse— even when they are, like, um, sort of vaguely implying that a person has been abusive, they're literally accusations like, um, you know, gaslighting or, like, um, whatever. I mean, we've seen some crazy ones, right? Like, this person is dating more people than I would like or this person is whatever, like, kind of like a shitty dude. Like, it's it's vague, Um It's not specific. A pattern of harm. Exactly. Things like that. And so, you know, I have gone through trials um, as an accuser. um, And I know what it's like when you go to the police and you report these types of um, intimate partner violence situations. And it's, they literally don't take things like that seriously. Like, you have to have concrete accusations of serious abuse like physical and sexual abuse in order for the police to actually intervene. And so what I'm saying there, I'm not saying that we should not care about things that the police don't care about, but what I'm saying is that it's dishonest to say that it is an alternative to cops when it is something that the cops would never be involved in in the first place. In the first place, right? In fact, what we're doing is we are, you know, creating new types of punishment and new types of crime. Crime, literally that that the cops don't even care about, that the cops don't even deal with, right? So I find it really frustrating when um, accountability processes are seen as this, like, alternative to the cops because I'm like, on the one hand, they would not be effective in situations of serious violence, and on the other hand, the situations that they are um, maybe not effective in but that they are able to actually, you know, happen are situations that the police would not get involved in to begin with. Right. Like it's creating new ways to um, police and like administer these codes of behavior that we have in our like subcultural, progressive, lefty, whatever sphere. Um, Codes of behavior that like are not even covered by the criminal justice system because it's things that the criminal justice system doesn't even really care about. Um, And then, yeah, we're pretending like that's a sort of like alternative justice system when really, yeah, it's like us policing the behavior of people who. Um, by virtue of, like, how this whole thing is set up, of people who, like, are already the most likely to, like, agree with you on basically everything yeah. and be, like, involved in your politics and, and yeah, who who are the people who would, like, participate in an accountability process in the first place, right? Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah, and then, like, so, yeah, so that's why... Accountability processes are not really um, an alternative to the cops. But a lot of people also think that accountability processes are, like, an alternative to cancel culture, right? Yeah. And people will, like, message us about this and be like, well, what do you think about this, like, al- like alternative sort of 
accountability framework that, yeah, that, we, you, that I read about. Or and something. you see it all the time with like statements like, um, you know, we don't need council culture. We need accountability culture or things like that. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, but it's like accountability culture or like accountability processes writ large are part of the nexus. Like they really are. And they rely on cancel culture in a bunch of different ways. Um, first of all, many of them rely on cancel culture to actually get people to participate in them. Right. Most people given the choice would not want to participate in, um, a process where they're already considered guilty yeah, and where they have very little control, if any, over what happens to them at the end. Um, yeah. Administered by people that they fundamentally do not trust. Yeah. Yeah. Run by people who hate them. Yeah. Right. Like it sounds like a bad idea. Yeah. Almost anyone would be like, no. So you have to force people, coerce people, or at least push them very forcefully um, to, to participate, right? And the main way that that's done is through either campaigns of cancel culture or um, the threat of cancel cancellation. Yeah, and you see this all the time in cancel culture. The idea of refusing to be accountable is like a fundamental pillar of cancel culture, right? People not, even when... I, even when an accountability process was actually never suggested, like the specter that the person has refused to be accountable is used as a crime in and of itself. Right. Um, even if like the initial thing that they were accused of is very vague. And that happened in my cancellation where it was like the thing that I was accused of was very vague and very minor. And it had to do with not posting the way that people wanted me to post. But then my refusal to deplatform, which was suggested as the way that I should be accountable for not posting the way that people wanted me to post. Right. That became the thing, that right. I had refused to be accountable, and then that was, like, the whole thing unto itself, right? Right. Yeah, and these the accusations kind of morph, like, yeah. into each other, like, that, that way. Um, also, accountability processes rely heavily on nexus orthodoxies around identity, right? They can't really function without them, because if they did... Like you, you would have to have a process of discernment to to figure out like if if claims are accurate or who is actually the one being abused here or any mm -hmm. of this stuff. But all that can be sort of sidestepped using identity identity categories. You can just be right. like, well, one one of these people is clearly more privileged, and therefore they're in the wrong. Yeah, you know. Um, and often that's like literally how it works. Also, as we mentioned, oftentimes the crimes that people are being accused of in these accountability processes are firmly based on identitarianism. Um, it's it's things like that you didn't um, check your privilege enough in right. certain scenarios or that you weren't aware of how your uh, positionality would impact people when you like hit on them at a party. Right. Or like stuff like this that it's it's like um, first of all, like yeah, like obviously no court of law would yeah. give a fuck about it. Um, but second of all, it's like, it's not an alternative to the nexus. It is part of the nexus yeah. and it's an extension of accountability culture or sorry, it's an extension of cancel culture. It's like a, um, just a more formalized version of a cancellation. It's a cancellation that has, um, a sort of like board of people who are administering it. Yeah. Um, and, and, and really often it's like, um, if you are a person, if you're the accused and you sort of are like, okay, well, I would like to know more about what I am supposed to do then if I'm not supposed to do that, they'll be like, well, that's a very priv privileged thing for you to say or something right. like that, right? Totally. So, like, it's all the same kind of, like, uh, content of cancellation and, like, nexus uh, meanness, basically, but just administered in a slightly different way. Yeah, and I've seen 
cancellation where, like, a person, you know, was accused of something specific and then it sort of unraveled. We've actually heard of more than one example of yeah, this. Yeah, it's true. Where, like, the specific accusation sort of unraveled and it, it became clear that what they were accused of is not actually representative of their behavior, but then it shifted to just their identity, period, means that, of course, they are vaguely guilty because they hold that identity, right? Right. So, like, a person accused of racism, um, it turns out they did not do the thing, the specific thing that they were accused of, but then because they're white, it's like, well, they they— According to Nexus um, frameworks, they are just inherently just generally racist. Yeah, yeah, generally and inherently racist. Um, and so, um, yeah, it definitely comes out of like identitarian like Nexus um, worldviews. And also, part of like the way that it functions within the Nexus is that not being a Nexon is a crime, right? Like, right. like not being a Nexon is something that you need to be held accountable for, right? And many accountability processes are, um, they come out of this idea that, like, it is actually okay and normal to hold someone accountable for having a different ideological perspective, even a leftist one, right? Right. So to not be an identitarian, to not to not hold with, like, privilege theory, for example, to have different ideas of understanding, like, what it means to be a leftist. Um, all of these things can actually be seen as things that you must be held accountable for, and your assertion that, like, you don't agree is seen as refusing to be accountable. Right, and again, because people who are not implicated in the nexus in some way would generally be like, absolutely not fuck off when they're presented with the idea of an accountability process, right? Yeah. Um, it means that it's basically an in intra-nexus phenomenon, right? Yeah. And so it serves the same function as cancel culture within the nexus, which is to um, police the boundaries of the nexus and to, and to take people who are drifting away from the nexus in one way or another and either bring them back in and punish them or push them out of the nexus and hermetically seal the nexus from them by by like just completely exiling them and making sure that they don't have interaction with the nexus anymore yeah and it's unfortunately because you know nexus ideas are spreading and becoming more mainstream it's becoming you know more and more common for people who are not deep into like twitter or not deep into like instagram infographic culture right to suddenly find that they are being expected to do an accountability process um, and so I think there are more and more people who are like, what? Like, I don't understand this. Um, but who are being threatened with, you know, losing their job and their community and like all sorts of things if they don't comply. So, um, yeah, I think that that makes it pretty clear that it is not an alternative to cancel culture. Um, and also like the fact that so much of this, um, which we're going to talk about this in a little bit as well, more, more specifically, but so much of this takes place on the internet publicly with like a record that, that is punitive in and of itself because the person can't escape it. Right. Mm -hmm. So even if the person has like done the accountability process, like I've seen these websites, um, that are made about various like quote accountability pods or whatever that they do. And they basically do these websites that like basically you know, list all of the accusations against the person and then list, like, in minute detail, like, all of the different steps that they've done through the accountability process. And I'm like, I don't see how this is not cancel culture. Even if at the end you're saying, okay, like, we have decided to let the person back into our scenes or whatever, you've actually marked them in this way as a person who has caused harm. And we know that cancel culture is, like, perpetually unforgiving. And so they're... 
like realistically, we know that they're not going to live that down. Yeah. It is going to continue to follow them, even if at the end of the accountability process, it's been declared that we should no longer harass this person. The website is still up. The information is still out there. Everybody knows that this is a person who, quote, caused harm. Yeah, and the, like, 15 anonymous stories that you collected with your Google form are, like, still up there, you know? Exactly. And so that is going to have very concrete consequences for this person's life going forward. Yeah. Um... Yeah, and I don't know, a big part of how all this works is, well, what I call the valorization of wooliness. Um, and basically what that means is that there's like a strong resistance within the nexus in general, but but very often within these accountability processes, there's a strong resistance to anything being concrete. Um, and that applies to um, the accusations, you know, like the, the accusations are constantly shifting. They're very nebulous. They're often using these words that are like very badly defined, like harm or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it can apply also to uh, the outcomes. Like what is the outcome of this actually supposed to be? Um, often people who are being accused in these accountability processes will be like, yeah, well, I mentioned this earlier, but they'll be like, yeah, like I would like to know what are like, I don't know, five things I can do to like not be racist anymore since you're saying that I'm racist and I don't really understand what I did or like why I'm different than any other white person in what I did. So like, what are some things I can do? Or like, what are things that I'm not supposed to do? Please just give me a fucking concrete list of things. And like, just the ask for like a concrete list of things is itself seen as an extremely problematic thing to do. It's, um, you know, it's seen as wanting, uh, just wanting to be good, you know, and then and then people can be like, oh well, actually, the desire to please others um, is itself a white supremacist construct yeah. or something like that, yeah. you know, or it's a uh, it's a desire to have everything written down in black and white, you know, and it's like, oh well, actually, the desire to have things not be fluid and and whatever is itself a white supremacist construct um, or a, a masculine construct or whatever it is, yeah. right? Yeah, um, just a construct of an identity that I don't like. Um, and yeah, and like the there's a total lack of clarity. There's a total lack of clarity. Very often, the goalposts often shift, as we just mentioned. You know, sometimes it can it, it can actually become clear through the course of an accountability process that the specific thing that someone's accused of didn't actually occur. Um, but then it's like it's like a Martin Bailey um, where the the goalposts are just shifted back, and it's like okay, well that doesn't really matter. But um, we have been made we've been made aware through this throughout this process. That that um you know that is harmful and therefore it doesn't really matter if you didn't do that specific thing that you're actually being right. accused of because there's definitely probably other accusations out there yeah you know what i mean and it doesn't matter that they haven't actually been made yeah um because you have a pattern yeah you know it's very like kafka-esque and terrifying yeah um, and i've also seen you know i've seen um accountability processes i mean you know we're using this term accountability process but often the language of accountability processes is used also in incredibly vague ways, right? Mm -hmm. And it gives this impression that there's, like, this contained um, structure around it, and sometimes there is. Sometimes there's, like, this elaborate structure, including, like, multiple pods and, like, whatever. Sometimes it's, like, very, very bureaucratic, and other times it's incredibly vague and there is no structure at all. It's not even really a process, but the language of accountability processes is used around it to give people this sense that that it is this, like, contained process. But I have seen these processes or calls for accountability. I've seen examples where they have been responded to exactly. Like the person has done every single thing that they were asked. And then once they did what they were asked, 
it wasn't enough. And then suddenly it becomes, there's this other thing. Or the way that you did it wasn't right, and it actually revealed another crime. And so now we have this other demand. And I have seen some people who were, like, devout Nexons, you know, who just genu- like genuinely believed in this stuff and wanted, believed that, like, you know, if you just hold yourself accountable, it will be okay, right? Because we, right. Aren't, we don't believe in disposability, right? So they have done everything, um, everything that was asked. And, and it just keeps escalating. It just keeps escalating and the things that are asked become more and more intense. And in some cases, I have seen it actually get to the place where people are suggesting that the person should kill themselves. Um, yeah, I've seen that a couple times too. And it's crazy. And, and like, I mean, also, like, it, it, another crazy element of this is that sometimes the person's very willingness to do everything that is asked of them is it's is itself seen as, like, evidence right. that they're, like, I don't know, that they're, like, some kind of, like, people pleaser or that they're, like, using it because they just want to be, um, right. you know, they, they just they just want to not have people mad at them or whatever. Yeah. And it's like, of course you don't want people mad at you. Yeah. And, of course, you, you want to do whatever you're being told to do so that you can get the fuck out of this accountability process. Literally, of course. Yeah, and that's seen as a crime in and of itself when people are like, you just don't want to be harassed. You just don't want, you know, to have everything taken from you. And it's like, well, yes. I mean, that's a normal thing for people to want. And of course they want that. And it's like, because it's a coercive process that you can't really escape from if you're like within the nexus and you're being like pushed into it and whatever, of course you're going to do whatever it takes to get out. The same way that torture victims will say whatever they think their captors yeah. want them to say. And the same way that people go for fucking plea deals yeah. in the criminal court system. Yeah. Even if they know that they are innocent of the crime that they're being accused of, they'll go for a plea deal because it's it's there's a likelihood that they might have to do five years. And they're like, yeah. well, if I just say I'm guilty, they'll let me off with five months. So I yeah. might as well just do that because five years is fucking terrifying, right? Yeah. People will de- say and do all kinds of shit to get out of terrifying situations that yeah. they're being coerced into. And having, you know, a large number of people, including people that you previously trusted and including people that you literally don't know, like surround you um, and create a public spectacle in which you are framed as like, you know, a harm doer, um, in which you are asked to, like, step away from your employment, in which you are asked to, like, you know, all sorts of things. We'll get more into that. It is a terrifying situation. It's a really terrifying situation for people to be in, and it actually does not create the conditions for um, true responsibility in any way. So, yeah. Yeah, so that's, and like, a bunch of... Yeah, like, just a lot of the time, it ends up being this kind of instrumentalization of postmodernism, where... Um, everything is sort of fluid and in flux and actually trying to pin anything down um, is itself seen as a problem. And it'll, it basically allows the accountability process to just fucking drag on forever or to like never actually have clear outcomes. Um, and it can be very, very difficult for everyone involved. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think another piece um, of this, just before we move on, is the lack of accountability for the accusers or the facilitators, right? Like, there mm. are no checks and balances in place to make sure that that the accountability process is accountable, you know? That it's fair, that, like, um, that people are, um, you know, not asking for things that are unreasonable or behaving in ways that are cruel and punitive or being dishonest. Like, there isn't any checks and balances to make sure that the... Um, accusers and facilitators and the people who are running this process are doing so in a way that is actually ethical. Yeah. And to, to be totally fair, I think that like some, 
uh, sort of professional mediator, facilitator, or whatever kind of like organizations that that help people do accountability processes do have some sorts of checks and balances like that. Um, but in general, in our experience, it is kind of a farce. Um, and there's very little in the way of fairness. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, we'll get into it more in a moment, but like that also raises a question, like for people who are doing this professionally, yeah. they have a vested interest in there being an accountability process, right? Because it's literally their job. Exactly. And so I don't know that that could be considered like a neutral party. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So the next thing that we wanted to talk about, I mean, obviously we've somewhat um, mentioned these things, but we're going to go into it a little bit more is the ways in which accountability processes can be coercive and punitive. Right. So as we've already said, they rely on the threat of cancel culture. Um, basically, I mean, this is such a, <laughs> this is such a basic concept, but like, I really encourage people to think about this in relationship to the concept of accountability processes. If saying no is not an option, what is happening is not consensual. Just think about that for a second. Because we understand that in other areas, right? Right. That if if you saying no is going to result in being punished, that means you're being coerced. Like, that's literally what coercion means. That you are not free to say no because to say no will result in punishment, right? And that is the basic... Um, the framework in which people enter into accountability processes because accountability processes are seen as like the more like, like the softer way compared to being canceled. Right. Right. So you're being asked, it's like Jay was just saying about the plea deal. It's like, take this accountability process because otherwise it's going to be a free for all on the internet. Yeah. Um, and, and people are going to harass you and there's, and you're going to be exiled from your community and people will justify that by saying that, well, you refuse to be accountable. And if you had agreed to be accountable, well, none of this would have had to have happened. Right. And so this is not a consensual process. And I actually think that a lot of people who write about, you know, transformative justice and accountability processes sort of skirt over the issue of consent. The idea that, in fact, for this to be um, ethical, the accused person needs to consent to this. And that needs to be, for it to be consent, it needs to be a real option for the person to say no. At least if we're pretending that it's an alternative to, like, more punitive or carceral systems. Or if we're pretending that it's ethical. I'm like, if it is not, if it is coercive, it is not ethical. Um, And so, this is a problem, you know? Um, People have to have the right to say no. And I think that where people... Um, sort of disagree with me on that is they will be like, well, you know, if this person caused harm, then the person that they harmed didn't have the right to say no. So why should this person have the right to say no? And I'm like, that is the logic of punishment. Like it is literally the carceral logic of being like, you, you hurt someone else. So now I get to hurt you. Mm -hmm. That is different from intervention, which we went into a lot in episode six. And basically just to, like, quickly review for our listeners, like, the way that I understand intervention is that it is okay for me to violate somebody else's boundaries literally only in the circumstance in which they are currently violating somebody else's boundaries or there is, like, a very, very, very clear, obvious um, reason to believe that they are going to do that, right? right? That's, in my opinion, the only the only thing that gives me permission to violate somebody else's boundaries, right? So, for example, if someone is, like, punching someone in the face and I grab them 
and prevent them from doing that. Like, yes, I have just violated their boundaries by physically like holding them against their will, but I'm doing so because they were just about to do that to someone else, right? And so I think that people um, try to pretend like it's intervention and it's not punishment by saying, well, we're doing this basically to stop them from um, violating other people's boundaries in the future. One, it's that I don't think that they've actually demonstrated that this is an effective way of preventing them from violating people's boundaries in the future. And two, I don't think that they've actually demonstrated in many cases that, like, this person is going to violate people's boundaries in the future, right? Mm -hmm. So, in fact, what they're saying is because they did so in the past, we get to do so now. Um, And that is actually the logic of punishment, in my opinion. It doesn't actually, it's not actually ethical or fair. And as an abolitionist, I don't agree with it. So that is one of the main issues is just like, is this entered into freely by all parties? And if it is entered into, like, it's like, if you got, if you get a yes, but it's only through threatening them, then that's not one piece. Yeah. And of course, like, it's worth pointing out too, that like people who either don't think cancel culture exists or don't think it's serious, wouldn't agree that there is a threat of punishment attached right like they don't agree that cancel culture exists so they wouldn't agree that 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 you can't say no right right um and i think that that's one of the ways that they get around that and i mean i would be like great so if that's true then i'm going to expect you to leave this person alone (laughs) right if that's true then if this person says no to the process then you are not going to message every single person that they know that's what i would expect right? right if cancel culture doesn't exist you're not going to be bothering them and if that's the case, then we can move on. I don't understand what the problem is. Um, but anyway, so um, the next piece about why it's coercive and punitive is that, you know, based on what you we were talking about earlier about how, you know, you have to, quote, believe survivors, which means, quote, believe accusers, um, going along with that is that the demands made by the accuser have to be carried out and are not questioned, right? So, like, very often you'll hear this language of, like, centering the survivor. And, like, even when people, you know, make the argument that, like, an accountability process is meant to be healing for everyone, including the accused, it is meant to be restorative for everyone, including the accused, there will still be this push that we actually need to center the needs of the survivor over the accused, right? Right, right. Um, That the survivor's needs should be prioritized. And so, I mean, that makes sense if you're thinking about it in certain contexts, like, for example, if it is, if there is a threat that this person is going to assault me, if we're both in the same space, then yes, I think that the person who is in danger of being assaulted should be prioritized to access that space because they're the one who's in danger, right? Right. But we've extrapolated from that to mean that the accuser gets to basically demand anything of the person who is, quote, being held accountable. And that to question what they are demanding would be to not be centering survivors, right? Um, And so I have seen some pretty, in my opinion, crazy, absurd demands as part of, quote, accountability processes. Um, I have seen demands that people give up their employment. Mm -hmm. Often when people have employment that is seen as, like, cool, like, for example, they are, like, an artist of some kind or they are a... um, tattoo artist is a common one yeah or some kind of public figure it is seen that they basically don't have the right to have that job since they have quote caused harm right um and we talked about this a lot in episode six so i'm only going to just briefly talk about it here but basically 
I actually don't understand the logic of that unless it is that they literally used their position in their job to do whatever the abusive thing is. So like, um, I don't know, they're a tattoo artist who like sexually assaulted their client. It's like, okay, I understand then why you would say that them working at their job could be a threat to people because they did the violent thing at their job, you know? Um, But if they didn't, um, if it has nothing to do with their job, I don't understand why you're asking them to not do their job. Um, And often, like, the argument behind that is just, I mean, it's a punitive one. It's basically just that they don't deserve to have nice things. because Or they don't deserve to be allowed to show their face. Yeah, like, I guess that, like, it would be, to take it seriously would mean to basically, you know, not have nice things for a while and to, like, not be a public part of community. And I don't agree with that. I believe that people should be able to have their jobs. I believe that they should be able to have their lives. I believe that they should be able to be a part of community, even if they did do something that was abusive. And that, in fact, having those things is going to increase the likelihood of them being supported enough to do the work that they need to do to be responsible. Right. If they have been abusive. Um, I have seen examples in which people are basically extorted. People are basically coerced into giving up the money that they make off of like a certain creative project, like a book, um, and then donating that money to transformative justice organizations or something big like this. Yeah. Um, Which again, it's like, we need to really think about the vested interests that people have in things like this, Right. People are literally able to take the money that somebody made off of their own project um, for their organization, and there's actually very often no transparency about where that money actually went or what they're doing with it, right? Right. So that is quite frightening to me, and I don't understand why a person should have to give up the money that they made on their book or whatever. Um, And then there's also sometimes um, demands that are very invasive to the person's personal life. So demands can include things like deciding, um, like, who a person should be allowed to have intimate relationships with, how and when and under what context they're allowed to have sex or date. Um, There will be, like, uh, demands made in accountability processes that ask people to not date for, like, a a period of time or to not date specific types of people. Right. Um, and to me, I'm like, I, I don't see how people cannot see how controlling and abusive that is. Yeah. It is not your right under any circumstances to control another person's sex life um, or their intimate life or their dating life or whatever. Right. Um, so, like, a lot of the types of demands that can go along with accountability processes, in my opinion, are, like, overtly, obviously inappropriate are overtly abusive and controlling, but because they are wrapped up in the language of you know, support survivors and, like, you can't question, like, what a survivor needs for their healing, um, we just accept them. But I'm like, actually, yes, you can and should question what someone is demanding for their healing. Like, people have the right to ask for certain things, for sure. I think there's some reasonable things you could ask for. But you actually don't have the right to control another person's life. And you don't actually need that for your healing. Um, and I and like I'm gonna get into it a little bit more later, but it's actually like a pretty dysfunctional thing to encourage survivors to think that we need to control other people's lives for our healing. Yeah. Um, and then um, I kind of already touched on this, but basically, many of the demands that are made um, have no concrete connection to intervention, 
meaning that there's often this like sort of implication that we are asking these things or doing these things for the safety of community, but it is not demonstrated how, in fact, this leads to the safety of community, right? right? So you actually have to, you can't just be like, this person is, is a shady character, and so therefore they're not allowed to do anything, because it would be dangerous for the community if they did anything. Right. That doesn't make sense. Like, you, you actually have to demonstrate why it is. And I think that there are sometimes certain situations where it, it could make sense, right? Um, whether or not you're actually able to enforce that is another question. I think, for example, that if, if a person has, like, a repeated history of when they get drunk, they become really violent— it makes sense to me that the people in that person's life would want to encourage that person to stop drinking. Right. You know? Um, Absolutely. It makes sense that they would want that because there's, like, a demonstrated situation where when they drink, they tend to get really fucked up and they and they hurt people. So that makes sense. Like, how you would actually enforce that is another question. Um, and I, I'm in the school of thought that you can't actually force people to do things. But I can understand making a request to be like, for example, if you want to be my friend or if we're going to be in a relationship, I can't be around you when you're drinking because when you drink, you assault people or you scream in their faces or whatever it is. Yeah. Um, so that's like a concrete example. Yeah, or, like, or, or like if, I don't know, if I were to imagine an accountability process that like made sense and wasn't horrible um, and made like a sort of demand on someone that they agree to you, that it could be something like you're not allowed to like come to a show if you're fucking drunk. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because every time you do, you fucking attack people <laughs> or something like that. You totally. Know? And, like, we, you know, in the other episode, we talked about, like, an example of intervention might be, like, we use the example of, like, somebody at an AA meeting, like, robbed the treasury. So now they're not allowed to be the treasurer anymore. Right. Because they have broken that specific trust. And so it doesn't, people don't trust them doing that specific thing. Right? Right. right. And so, like, there are some situations where it's, like, you did a specific thing and you have a pattern of doing a specific thing in a specific area and so we don't want you to do things in that area right. for the time being until you've demonstrated that you're not going to do that anymore. Right. And, like, that could be an example of intervention. Um, but those things still have to be contained. They can't be indefinite. Um, and I actually do think that there are areas where um, it actually becomes, like, inappropriate and abusive to enforce those things onto other people. Yeah. So, for example, like, okay, a person, um, you can't tell a person that they're not allowed to date. Like, maybe you can tell them that, but I actually think that it is abusive to try to control a person's dating life. So, yeah. Do you feel like I covered that? Yeah, I think so. Okay. So, the next piece that we wanted to talk about is um, the concept of spectacle and public consumption that goes on with accountability processes. Like, why is this happening publicly? Yeah. Why is this happening publicly? And there is this idea with accountability... um, and I, I mean, we once got into a conversation about, like, where is the origin of the word accountability come from? Mm. Um, and I don't really know. But, like, to me, when I think about accountability, I think about, like, accounting, right? Like, either accounting in terms of, like, telling a story or, like, accounting the way that accountants do it where you, like, lay everything out and you, like, show everything that happened. Right. Um, and so, like, right in the word accountability is this sort of um, – this idea about, like, telling a story or laying it all out there, right? Um, and it's very different – from what I understand responsibility to be, which I actually see as, like, a very private practice, where most of it is happening in private, and there are, like, some instances where it might be a bit more public, but it's very context-specific, right? So, I have a problem with the fact that all of this happens on the internet, and that even when there are, like, contained accountability processes, there's usually, like, a website about them 
in which all of the accusations are laid out publicly and all of the steps are laid out publicly and literally anyone can read it. And also anytime a person does anything, like an accused person does anything, people will like link the um the thing. Yeah. And I think I mentioned this in episode six, but I know of exactly one accountability process that I think went well. And um, it was all very private. It involved only the people who were involved and a couple of support people. The outcomes were private. The, um, like all the processes that happened were all private. And I think that that is like, I don't know, that is like an important element in any sort of like mediation or something that is going to go smoothly. If you don't want to completely overwhelm someone's nervous system, um, totally destroy their life because it's all happening on the fucking internet and anything on the internet never goes away. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, part of when, when we're going back to like the concept of abolitionism, like one of the things that abolitionists push against is the concept of a criminal record, right? Right. Um, so there's this idea that like the, the logic of a criminal record is that in order for, you know, people to determine the trustworthiness of this person, you need to know about the things that they did in the past, right? The things that they did in the past that were fucked up. Mm-hmm. And I don't I don't agree with the logic of this at all right. for a lot of reasons. One, I don't think that it is an effective way of keeping people safe because you literally can't force everybody to tell everything that they did in the past. Like, you might try, like, you know, cancel culture and, like, this, like, accountability spectacle culture really tries to force everybody to publicly announce every single bad thing that they've ever done. Mm -hmm. That's what they want. They want us to like rigorously go through our worst deeds and like state them publicly on the internet and to announce them to every new person that we have a relationship with. And that we think that by doing that, that's how we keep ourselves safe. But first of all, literally no one is going to do that (laughs) unless they are basically forced. And then even if you're forcing them, like you don't, you weren't there their entire lives. You don't know every single worst thing that they've ever done. It's impossible to know that. And so I just don't think it's a very like realistic way for us to have information about how to keep ourselves safe. First of all. Secondly, it's like, we know that, and I mean, one of the core beliefs of abolitionism is that people change, right? If I were to go around every person that I met and give them a detailed description of how I acted when I was in active alcoholism and then expect that they should make their decisions about having me in their lives based on that information, it would be very hard for me to, like, build a life today and to um, develop new relationships because people would be like, well, actually, Clementine, I do not want you to scream in my face constantly, you know? But I don't scream in people's faces anymore, and I haven't done that for nine years. But based on this logic in order for people to make an informed decision about, you know, having having me in their lives, they need that information. And I just fundamentally don't agree with that because I know that people do change. And so the information that they need is about how you're acting now. What is your behavior like today? What yeah. are your basic, you know, like what are the patterns of behavior that you hold in your life in the present? And that is the information that we need about whether or not we can trust people, not what they did in the past. Um, so... That is why I have a problem with that, both in the concept of criminal records and in this, like, cancellation online spectacle thing. Yeah. And then the other piece is that, you know, even if you personally, you know, are stating that you don't want this person to be disposed of, you don't want this person to be harassed, the reality is, is that this is the culture that we have created and it is the culture that exists, right? So I have literally seen um, calls for accountability that state, I do not want this person to be harassed. What do you think happens? <laughs> do you think that that person is not harassed? Or do you think that that person is most definitely harassed by 
a whole number of strangers who are not in any way associated with the situation at all, right? Because the way that cancel culture works is that once a person is marked, they are an open target for anyone who wants to harass them, right? And so we know this. This is the reality of the situation. And we could argue that, you know, it shouldn't be the reality of the situation. It fucking is, though. But it is. And so when we make public statements um, about people... Denouncing people. We actually have to be responsible for the outcomes of that, the reality of that. And this is why, even though there are some people whose names I definitely know who harass me and treat me in very reprehensible ways, I never name them publicly. Because I know that as soon as I name them publicly, I lose control over what's going to happen. Yep. And I actually could incite something against these people that I do not want to happen to them, right? Yeah, because totally. Because I do have a platform and because people, even people are, seem to be very confused about what I mean when I say I'm against cancel culture. Um, <laughs> but I actually don't trust that people would not go after these people because, yeah. they, because they supposedly care about me and my work and they don't want this person hurting me. But I'm like, well, I don't want this person hurting me either, but I also do not want this person to experience mob harassment, right? Yeah. And so we have to actually understand that once those things are made public, they don't go away. They follow this person. They're on Google, you know. How is this person supposed to go and get a job and put their resume in when it says their name? And as soon as the person Googles their name, a giant website comes up that's like a bunch of pods talking about how this person has done extensive harm in the community. Like, is that person going to get the job? Probably not, right? And so we actually have to think about the ways that this being a public spectacle is creating long-lasting, huge negative impacts on people's lives. Um, and is like a labor issue as well. It's definitely a labor to issue. To be honest, yeah. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, another piece of this is that, and we see this all the time, is that strangers who literally do not know the accused and who do not know the accusers and who actually know very little about what happened, maybe you just have heard vague things, sometimes literally as vague as this person has caused harm, will get involved and make it their own personal mission to like pile on to the cancellation right and, and also consume it as entertainment yeah as consume it as entertainment and and pass it along to like sometimes hundreds of thousands of other people right yeah and also i mean something related which molly is really our friend molly is really good at pointing out is that um social media corporations make like enormous amounts of money off of these f- these feeding frenzies right yeah. because it's like tons of clicks tons of engagement um yeah totally um and yeah, it's basically like tabloid culture. It's this like thing that we we love drama. We love reality TV, right? We love watching people tear each other apart. Um and people passively consume this and then others like actively involve themselves um and act as authorities on a situation that they literally know nothing about. Yeah. And when we say things like, you know, we need to be accountable to our communities, we have to consider what does that mean? when we're talking about a global internet network, right? How can you be accountable? How can somebody consider themselves a part of your community when they don't even live in the same continent as you and they have never met you or anyone that you know? They're not a part of your community. And the idea that you need to be accountable to them makes literally no sense because you don't know them and have no relationship to them. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And so then, yeah, it contributes to a total lack of privacy, even the basic idea that people should have the right to keep some things to themselves is totally obliterated once we see someone as a public figure. But now with social media, it is very easy to see basically anyone 
if you have like a couple thousand followers, you're seen as a public figure, right? Yeah. Um, and so it is seen that you um do not have the right to a private personal life, which I actually don't agree literally in general, even for real public figures. I'm like, they're still human beings. They still deserve privacy and to have some aspects of their lives not be up for public consumption. Mm. Um, and then, yeah, there's just this like incredible sense of entitlement that people have to both consume and participate in these spectacles, um, even if they do not know anything about what has actually happened or what is actually going on. Yeah, absolutely. And I wanted to talk a little bit about the all the sort of like imagined communities that you were just touching on that go into this whole thing like and there's a couple different ways to think about this like the first is like literally like people imagine organizations oftentimes um that like when someone is being canceled and someone is being accused of evading accountability or something like that people will often imagine that there must be somewhere an organization (laughs) that is sort of in charge of this who has um been been paying attention and and um, not necessarily like a, you know, like a, a big like institution or something, but some sort of like collective mm-hmm. or something like that, um, that has been paying attention that has like, you know, um, collected evidence that shows that this person hasn't been, uh, being accountable or something like that and who have an accountability process ready to go. And this person just, uh, refuses to engage with it or something like that, you know, and very, very often the, the language of like evading accountability, avoiding accountability, refusing accountability, this kind of stuff, um, plays on on this idea that there is an accountability process that someone could just enter into yeah. um but that they're just refusing to do so right however obviously very often um that is not the case right um i think that's definitely true for me like i was accused of i mean i'm constantly being accused of refusing accountability um but it's not like anyone ever sort of like invited me to an accountability right. process right and and yeah um and so people often imagine that but even further even when there is um an organization, maybe even like a medium-sized institution, you know, like a professional sort of like a um, co- collective or nonprofit or something like that that does uh, engage in these accountability processes, like on like a professional level, which do exist, right? Um, even when that exists, it's interesting because people really do imagine a community um, of peers that is very out of touch with reality. And so what I mean by that, I mean, I was just thinking about this idea of, let's say, let's say you do uh, ban an individual from like a certain venue. Right. Right. For, I don't know how long, a year. Right. Whatever. Let's say it's like until they're accountable. Right. Right. Who then decides when they've been accountable. Right. Right. And I think, I don't know, but I think that a lot of people who were kind of, like, immersed in in a lot of, like, anarchist ideas when they were sort of, like, coming of age politically or whatever, on some level, like, within them, maybe I'm just talking about myself, honestly, but I I do think that it applies to other people, too. On some level within them, they kind of imagine that, like, maybe one day um, we're going to have this, or maybe right now we have this kind of... um, network of peers that we could organize and we could all kind of like, I don't know, like vote on like whether or not someone is like allowed back into the venue or something like that. But what they're really imagining is Instagram, basically. They're they're imagining like a social network and and these social networks obviously are not, well, first of all, they're not equipped to like vote on somebody. Um, Second of all, they're like totally amorphous and porous um, and people come in and out and whatever. Third of all, they don't reflect any actually existing community of people. We don't even know our fucking neighbors. Yeah. Right. Um, what they reflect is a sort of, of like it's like a subcultural yeah. 
um, stratum of the society that we live in um, that is both local and, like, crazily international um, that is often based on, like, a a bunch of identity markers. Often queerness is, like, a huge one. Um, Or, like, punk or something like that. Yeah. You know? Um, And that's supposed to be, like, a stand-in for a community, but it's, like, a extremely alienated version of a community that's yeah. that's created solely by, like, the algorithms of fucking social media, you know? Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I don't know. There's a lot of, like, imagination that goes into this whole fucking thing. Second of all, I wanted to point out that there's, like, in these processes, there's no, like, neutral parties when it comes to the people who are actually, like, running these accountability processes, right? Like, if it's just a bunch of amateurs, um, then... They have, I mean, almost always, because they're, like, the accusers and the friends of the accusers are generally the ones who, like, set up an accountability process and and pressure somebody into it. They have a vested personal interest or, like, emotional interest in punishing the person who's being accused, right? Yeah. So they have not even, like, a pretense of neutrality, really. Yeah. Um, And if it is one of these um, NGOs or co-ops or whatever or collectives who is who's providing mediators and providing like a sort of professional transformative justice person or whatever, they have a vested interest in cancel culture continuing forever because that's their that's their fucking um, client base. It's people who've canceled other people and are now holding them accountable. Right. Um, And so if they piss off the cancelers or if they question the basic tenets of cancel culture or the basic tenets of identitarianism, yes. they're going to be out of a fucking job Yeah, really quick. They're going to be, I mean, they might get fucking canceled themselves because they're right. swimming with sharks. Yes. Um, yes, but, but they also might like, you know, if, if they were part of a sort of shift away from cancel culture, like their client base would fucking dry up. Yeah. Right. So, you know, there's a very, very, very strong interest in punishing the accused, believing the accuser, um, not questioning any of the basic tenets of accountability processes yeah. or like Nexus ideology. Um, and there's also like a very strong um, uh, push towards seeing yourself and what you're doing as fundamentally good, politically right, morally correct. Um, and therefore, if you do something fucked up, like, let's say you make some insane demand that, like, any normal person would look at and be like, that's fucking crazy, um, you are able to turn that around and be like, no, that is accountability, and that is, therefore, by definition, a good thing, Yeah. right? And so, it becomes very, very, very difficult to question any of this from without or from within. Yeah, absolutely. Right? Um, Yeah. Yeah, and I think Clementine wanted to point out that, like, well, I'll let you point it out. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. I actually talked about this on a Q&A um, that we did um, on our Patreon a while back. Um, but basically, one of the main issues that I have with the concept of um, accountability processes is that they unnaturally and unnecessarily attach the healing of the survivor and the healing of the abuser. Um, And so, like, I'm going to break this down, but basically for um, the purposes of this example, we're going to assume that this is not an example where someone has been falsely accused. Because in a lot of what we talked about, and very often, there is, like, false accusations and also, like, very overstated accusations, or something is framed as harm that is not harm, um, such as having a different opinion. But... Um, in some cases, there are situations where a person has been abusive um, and there is a survivor. And so in these situations, I actually don't think that accountability processes, um, as they're currently practiced anyway, are helpful. And the reason for this is that both sides, like the survivor and the abuser, have work ahead of them, right? They have a, 
a journey that they're going on um, if they want to heal. And for the person who is abusive, that journey, hopefully, is going to, like, end with a level of taking responsibility, right? Like, that's the hope. But okay, and like I can speak about this because I have been on both sides of this, right? I am both someone who has experienced a mass amount of trauma in my life, and I have been victimized in very extreme ways. And I am also someone who is a former alcoholic and acted in ways that are abusive and hurtful to other people for a number of years, right? And so I have been on both of those journeys, so I have an insight into them. Survivors have a journey to go on in terms of you know, healing their trauma. Like, in some cases, they have PTSD. Like, they have a lot of work to do to, like, recover from what happened to them. Um, They have a lot of work to do in terms of, like, regaining their sense of agency and autonomy um, and, and whatever. There's a lot. I'm a trauma educator. There's a lot that goes into healing from trauma. That is a journey that is their own separate journey. And actually, the survivor does not need the person who was abusive to be accountable in order for them to heal. And part of the um part of the framework that accountability processes put forward is this idea that justice or accountability or responsibility on the part of the person who abused them is fundamental and necessary for the survivor to fully heal and move on with their life. And I actually find this to be like an incredibly disempowering narrative for survivors because the true reality is many of us never get that, right? And, like, you know, there's people who think that we can force that by, like, forcing these accountability processes. And I already outlined, like, in the example of, like, my very abusive ex-partner how that was totally unrealistic. But, like, another example is, like, my parents, right? Am I going to gather up a bunch of my queer friends and, like, try to force my parents into accountability process? It's very absurd. My parents would not do that. <laughs> like, I, I can't even get my parents to go to therapy, you know? Um, and, like, I do want my parents to take responsibility. It would be profoundly healing for me if they did. It would be profoundly healing for me if my really abusive ex-partner, like, got to a place in his life where he was able to, like, make amends to me. That would be incredible, you know? It would mean a lot to me. At the same time, I don't expect to get those things, and I cannot hinge my healing and my growth and my life on that. Survivors can heal whether or not they get justice. Um, And it is very disempowering to tell survivors that they need that from others in order to heal. So that's the one piece. Yeah. The other piece is that um, the person who was abusive is, like, on their own journey too, right? And so that's going to be a long process in which they're going to have to, you know, reach a place where they're realizing that their behavior is, like, really not working for them, where they're going to have to reckon with, like, the fact that they've hurt people, where they're going to have to, like, come out of denial about, like, their various behaviors, where they're going to have to get supports to deal with probably their own past trauma, you know? Sometimes there's, like, substance abuse stuff that's going to need to get addressed. There's, like, a whole bunch of layers that are going to need to be addressed for this person to even get close to a place where they're ready to take true responsibility for their behaviors, right? Right. And that's a journey, you know? And I went on that journey through the 12 steps, and, like, there's other ways that people go through that journey. Um... Often it is going to need therapy, it's going to need community, it's going to need a lot of support. Um, But the thing is, is that these two journeys, they are on their own timelines, right? Because they're different people and there's different contexts and there's a whole bunch of stuff going on. So they're not lined up in time, right? right? So it might be that like, you know, I'm a survivor and I'm healing and I'm like ready and I want um, the person who abused me to be ready to make amends to me, Right. And so I really want that, and I want to, like, demand that now. But it could be that that person is, like, you know, currently nowhere near ready to give that to me, 
right? And so the logic of the accountability process is, well, we're going to make that happen by surrounding the person, by coercing the person and making it so that they have to do it now. Otherwise, they experience really severe consequences. But the reality is, is that, like, from my own experience of taking responsibility, is it is not something that can be forced. The most you're going to get out of that is a person sort of going along with it because they don't want to get into trouble. It's like the plea deal thing, right? It's not a sincere transformation. And in order for people to make a sincere transformation, they have to be doing it from a willing place. And you can't force that. And so, like, you you know, like there's many things we can do to support people to start to get to that place. And I think that that's important, but you can't control the timeline of it. And that's like in the 12 steps, it's like making amends is step nine. And often it can take like, you know, up to a year to get there because there's so much work that you have to do before you're ready to take responsibility. So like forcing someone to just take a rushed, like accountability when they are not ready is not actually going to get the true transformative results that we want. Um, and then on the other side, Say that you're someone who was abusive. You've come to like realizations about that. You've done tons of work. You've gone to therapy. You've gotten the help that you need. You have made amends to the best of your ability and you're, you've changed. You no longer act in those ways. But the person that you hurt is not actually ready to let that go, right? And the person that you hurt wants to basically hold you hostage with the thing that you did by saying that, you know, your amends is not enough and demanding all of these other things from you that are actually crossing your own boundaries, right? Right. Um, so it is possible also for a survivor to, like, hold the other person hostage indefinitely um, by saying, like, nothing is ever enough and you're not allowed to move on with your life because you're someone who's been abusive, right? Right. And that is not helpful for, for anyone. It's not helpful for the person who was abusive to actually, like, take responsibility and then move on. And it's also keeping the survivor, like, stuck in this way. And I think that there's, like, there's parallels to this with the criminal justice system, you know? And, like, I I mentioned that I have gone, you know, into the courts and everything, and I was highly encouraged to do that. And I was by, like, a, like a service for survivors of domestic violence where I was getting therapy. They highly encouraged me to go forward with charges because not only, obviously, would it potentially be good for my safety because he would no longer be able to be stalking me if he was in jail, but also because it was, like, you know, suggested to me that this would be, like, healing for me in some way. And I really realized through that process that it is not healing for me um, to control the life of the person who abused me. Like, what is actually healing for me is to separate myself from him and to realize that he is his own person and I am my own person and we both are separate people and that we had this experience, and that it was really hurtful for me, but that me controlling him is not actually freeing me, mm-hmm. you know? And so, and in fact, like, him being stuck in jail about something that he did to me is just keeping him stuck there, and in some way keeping me stuck there, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and so I don't actually think that it is empowering for survivors to try to control the lives of the people that... um abuse them. And like, I, I wrote about this, I just want to mention this briefly, but like, I wrote about this on my Instagram about a time in my life when I saw, um, my ex-partner's art up in the wall of a store in the community that I lived. And I passed the store and there was like his art up on the wall, you know? And at the time where I was at in my life at that time, I was like, this is a personal fuck you to me. You know, seeing his art on the wall was like in my, the way I saw it then was like, this is saying that what he did to me doesn't matter. This is saying that, you know, he can get away with it. This is saying that, like, my my pain is not important, you know? Um, 
really bad. It felt like almost violent, like this was something that was being done to me. And it took me many years to come to the understanding and the realization that this is not the case. That in fact, his art on the wall had nothing to do with what he did to me. That is a separate thing. And his art on the wall is actually representative of his own separate life that he has, that he continues to have even though he hurt me. And that he has a right to that life. And that, in fact, him being able to have community, to be able to have an artistic practice, to be able to have a rich life, are actually some of the things that he's going to need in order to ever get to the place that I hope that he gets to where he might be able to take responsibility for what he did. So I think that accountability processes, unfortunately, like bind the survivor and the abuser together in this way that like demands that their processes happen on the same timeline, usually like way quicker than they're actually able to happen. And sort of like falsely suggest that both of them are dependent on each other in order to heal and move on, which is not the case. Both parties are capable of healing and moving on, even if the other one has not arrived there yet. Yeah, and I like that you took this in kind of like a bigger picture direction because I wanted to add one thing before we close off. Which is just that, like, okay, so there's the question of, like, what do we do instead, you know? Mm -hmm. And it's like, okay, if you think about, like, an accountability process that's happening to, like, two people who you, like, vaguely know, right? Or between two people that you vaguely know. Um, I mean, just remember that, like, all people are equally real, right? Whether or not you know them. Or whether or not they're your friend or a stranger or whatever. Like, all people are equally real and they have equally real lives. And equally complex lives. And complex lives that, that, that equally matter, you know? And so when you start to take that point of view, then you can start saying, okay, like, what would actually help um well it would be putting time and energy towards groups for men um services for people who are being sexually abused or um or victims of domestic violence um working towards the abolition of uh housing precarity working towards um maximizing people's uh capacity for having like rich and complex social lives yeah um working towards making sure that people can access services like psychosocial services like therapy um easily and without payment yeah um making sure that all these kinds of different government services are um uh freely and equally accessible to all people you know regardless of uh citizenship or wealth you know um all of these things would massively help this yeah. the issue of, uh, let's say, abuse or, like, harm or whatever. Maximizing people's ability to leave relationships that are hurting them by making sure that they have a place to go. Yeah. Um, making sure that there's no such thing as a shelter that's full. Yeah, and, like, also, like, you know, um, creating cultures in which we can actually teach people about, you know, what a healthy relationship looks like and, like, what... Um, how to communicate well and how to practice consent well and, like, how to be in conflict well and, like, what are red flags of things, you know, that are veering into a situation of danger and, like, having a really rich community so that you can talk to the people in your lives about what is going on in your life um, so that you can check with them to be like, is this just, like, normative conflict or am I starting to see signs that this potentially could be a dangerous relationship for me to be in, et cetera, right? Yeah, exactly. And we believe in this stuff so fucking strongly. Like, I really want to see um, effective intervention into abusive situations. I really want to see survivors to be supported to heal their trauma, and I really want to see people who have been abusive given the tools that they need to genuinely transform because I know that that is possible. I just really do not see accountability processes as effective tools in that. And, like, I'm I'm not, like, against the idea that in some future context where um, um, we don't have cancel culture terrifyingly hanging in the background, 
that like some kind of collective process could not be like um, a contributing factor to healing. Oh, absolutely. Like I think that it could be under the right circumstances, but I do not think that coercion um, is the right circumstances. And I also think that even in the most ideal situation where we do not have coercion and we do not have cancel culture, we still have to deal with the reality that the timelines aren't necessarily going to match up. Right. Right. So it might be able to happen at some point. And that's kind of like what amends are. It's like at a certain point, there's enough healing that a conversation can happen and healing can happen collectively. Right. Right. Um, and that involves community, hopefully on both sides to like support people to get to that place. But it is not, like, this formalized process, and it doesn't happen in this, like, really speeded-up timeline where we, like, demand results even within, like, a year. Like, that's not realistic for people's actual lives, in my experience. Yeah, and, I mean, it depends on so much on the context, right? But, yeah, so all that to say, long story short, our advice um, to people who are being sort of pushed into accountability processes is don't fucking do it. Don't fucking do it. (laughs) Yeah, and we get a lot of messages from people who basically ask us what we think about, you know, should they go into an accountability process because they're being canceled and they're basically being offered, um, you know, an accountability process as a way for this to potentially end. And that maybe if they do an accountability process, they'll sort of be set free and they won't be harassed anymore. And basically in our experience and in our opinion, that is not usually the case. And in fact, going into the accountability process usually increases, um, the negative consequences in the accused person's life. It does not offer them an opportunity to say their side of things in any kind of meaningful way. Um, it often just really blows things up um, and in, and makes things worse. Yeah, keep your fucking boundaries. Your boundaries are very important. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're allowed to have boundaries. Um, even if you did do something fucked up, you're allowed to have boundaries. Yeah. Also, don't talk to the cops. And I don't mean necessarily the literal cops. I mean, don't self-incriminate. Yeah, and what that means is that you have the right to decide who you trust with what information. Exactly. So you actually, if you don't trust someone, if they are terrifying you, if they are if they are threatening you, if they are acting in ways that, sh- that demonstrate to you that they don't actually care about your humanity, then no, I don't think that they're a safe person for you to share vulnerable details about your life with. I do think that if you have done things that you regret and there are behaviors and, and, and things that have happened in your past that you're like, fuck, or even ongoing patterns that you're like, fuck, I know that this is fucked up. I do think that you need to talk to someone about that because you're going to need support in order to actually transform those behaviors. And I want you to have the support that you need to transform those behaviors, but you need to have someone that you trust, right? Someone who's not going to go put that on the internet and use it to shame you and try to destroy your life. You should, you know, seek out a trustworthy therapist. You should seek out trustworthy, like, mentors and community, people who have demonstrated that you can share what is going on in private and not have it blasted onto the internet. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and take care of yourself. Like, if you're being falsely accused, if you are, if you did something, um, you know, that is, like, normative conflict or a difference of opinion and it is being overstated as, like, harm and violence, or if you actually have done things that you're like, yeah, like, that was fucked up, in all of these cases, you still deserve to have your boundaries respected. You still deserve to be treated like a human being. You still deserve to have a rich and full life. And um, you shouldn't take part in things that are dehumanizing to you or that disrespect your basic humanity and boundaries yeah ma'am and don't let anybody make you do any crazy shit like fucking having to write like a list of every bad thing you've ever done or some like psycho bullshit like that don't do it it's not a good idea it's not a good idea um and And that's it comes back to the don't talk to cop thing don't talk to cops thing like 
yeah, you, you just, you shouldn't be forced to self-incriminate, um, whether or not you have like done the things that you're being accused of. Like some people will just admit to being like, uh, I don't know. Um, like, yes, I have behaved in, uh, in, in like white supremacist ways or something like literally just because they're being forced to say that. Right. Don't say that. If you are not a racist, don't call yourself a racist. Yeah. You know, Totally. Um, like, have stick to your integrity, stick to what you know to be true. And if you have questions and you're not sure, you know, because that could be true too. Like, maybe you're not sure if if what you did is harmful or not. I would talk to trustworthy people. Yeah. And I would try to talk to people outside of the nexus. Yes. You know, seek out a therapist outside of the nexus. Really, like, talk honestly about what happened and get some outside perspectives about the ways that you're being treated. And for people who are listening who, you know, are on the other side of it, who, either have been in conflict and have wanted to use accountability processes to, like, resolve that conflict or who have experienced abuse and um, want to use accountability processes to address abuse. Like, I get that listening to this kind of stuff can be stressful because you're like, okay, well, then what can I do instead? And, like, we have talked a bunch about that on the pod, and I feel like we will do more episodes on that. But there are lots of things that we can do instead in order to um, maintain our boundaries, protect ourselves and keep ourselves safe, Mm -hmm. build communities that are supportive for ourselves, and also get the support that we need to actually heal from trauma, which, like, you know, the other hat that I wear is literally, like, 100% about that kind of stuff. Um, So definitely, like, check out my Instagram if you are, like, interested in, like, trauma healing stuff um, and... And all of that, and listen and, to episode six for sure, because we go into a lot more detail about that in that episode. And, like, help build the future, you know? A future for yourself in which the kinds of circumstances you were getting yourself into or that you were being forced into, um, in which you were being abused or hurt, don't happen anymore, right? Or, and or, build a future, help build a future for everyone in which the kinds of circumstances that breed that kind of shit don't exist anymore, right? And, like, as socialists, that's literally, like, the entire point of of being a socialist, in, in some senses anyway, is to build the kind of future in which um, the the human misery that that produces all these sorts of abuses of power mm-hmm. and these, um, these petty tyrannies of, like, husband over wife or, like, um, you know, the, the kinds of ways that hurt people hurt each other or yeah. the alienation that produces addiction, which produces, like, all sorts of, like, dysfunctional behavior are removed, you know, and are replaced with much healthier and more holistic and more uh, humanistic systems, yeah. right? That's what we want. Yeah. And that's what you can do. Yeah. And, I mean, I'll say one more thing for survivors. I think one of the most empowering things that we as survivors can learn is that... The person who abused you doesn't have power over you anymore, right? Mm. You can actually build a life for yourself in which that person does not have power over you anymore. Mm. And I understand that that can feel really overwhelming, especially if, you know, there's somebody that you see around or you see on the internet and whenever you see them, you have like a very intense nervous system response. But you having that nervous system response is not actually an indication of that person continuing to hold power over you. Because if you got out, you got out, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that person actually doesn't hold power over you anymore, but what you are experiencing is your trauma, like it's your nervous system response, right? And that is something that you actually can heal. Um, and then you can get to a place in your life where, of course, like what happened will always have happened, and it 
fucking sucks and it's awful, but where you can like genuinely move on and where that person no longer holds any power over you. And I think that that is what true healing is for survivors. And I think that the idea that like we can only heal when that person does something is like in a weird reverse way, keeping us like stuck in a controlling situation with a person who abused us, you know, because it's, it's making them, um, the one who gets to decide if you get to heal and you get to heal. Like you don't actually have to wait for permission from them to do that. So yeah, again, this was like a super big topic, super loaded. I'm sure it was quite, um, maybe triggering for some people. So thank you for your patience in listening to it, whether, whatever, however you connect to these issues. Um, and definitely it's something that we're going to come back to because we have lots to say on this topic. Um, so just see this as like a tiny introduction. Um, and we will be back with more later. Yeah. And uh, don't forget to check out the Patreon. And um, yeah, thanks a lot for being with us on this journey of accountability.